0: hello welcome to the new books network i am your host steven Sakevich. in this episode i will be speaking with peter roberts and patty walker on their co-authored book wars changed landscape a primer on conflicts forms and norms that was published by howgate publishing limited in 2023 Peter Roberts is a Senior Associate Fellow for the Royal United Services Institute, or RUSI, having been Director of Military Sciences there between January 2014 and November 2021. Patty Walker is Managing Director of the Leon Group, a Senior Research Fellow in modern war studies at the university of buckingham an associate fellow at rusey and previously london chair of the ngo human rights watch peter roberts originally intended to be part of this interview but due to unforeseen circumstances he was absent uh patty walker uh, welcome to the new books network uh, stephen
1: very nice to, to thank you very much for having me
0: and uh, please send my regards to uh peter roberts who couldn't join us uh today Uh, We always like to begin our interviews by asking our guests, tell us a little bit about yourself and what's the backstory behind writing this book?
1: Uh, Fine. So I am uh, coming to you from London today, uh, minus one degrees. Uh, I'm ex-military a long time ago. uh, So you're speaking to an erstwhile tank commander uh, in the British Army on the Rhine uh, way back in the 80s. Uh, so I was commissioned into something called the Fifth Royal Inner in Dragoon Guards. And we were pointed squarely at the inner German border and the Russian menace uh, to the east. Um, I kept interested in the, uh, uh, in the space. Uh, and long story short, various masters, uh, one at Cornell, uh, your side of the pond, uh, and then a PhD over here in the challenges to the deployment of autonomous weapons. Uh, so I'm a senior research fellow at something called the Humanities Research Institute here uh, and an associate research fellow at RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute. And I know you have lots to do there. And very recently, I've become an associate at the Institute for the Public Understanding of War and Conflict, uh, which is at the Imperial War Museum here in um in London, and it would be remiss of me quickly to give, if I didn't uh, uh, talk to you about Peter Roberts, my absent co-author here, so he's ex-Navy, uh, was the director at uh, so Professor Roberts was the director of military science at RUSI he's also professor of war and warfare at the Ecole de Guerre in Paris and as we said uh, uh, before this uh, the show started today he's well known for his own podcasts uh, The Western Way of War which he did for RUSI and uh, his current series which is This Means War and also How to Train a, a Military and that's all required listening for or staff colleges the world over. Um, you asked really what the backstory to writing the book was. Um, I had met Peter at Rusi. Rusi, every three years does a sort of deep dive uh, into a particular subject. And when I got involved in 2019, it was just thinking, it had just delivered one on deterrence. Um, uh, with again always with the intention really to raise debate on the subject and also feed into central policy making which russi can do and uh, it was thought that we should do uh, use rusi's rolodex and also my university of buckingham the modern war studies uh, department there really to get access to the uh, to the experts and look at the norms and forms of, uh, of of warfare so there were no single body there was no sort of work currently collectively looking at those changing norms of warfare at the time. And uh, uh, Peter and I really thought that the, the, the current narrative at that time was very prone to very wide claims which when wrongly extrapolated by both military and politicians, obviously would really cloud the issue. So it was the it was a a, a, a means of trying to diversify the conversation and discussion about norms and forms. It's a very quick moving narrative. And we thought at that time, lots of strategic uncertainty and greater chance really of strategic misunderstanding, not understanding the norms and how they were moving. And they are of course, empirically changing all of the time. And we thought that within the context of a a broader great power conversation, it was the right time for Roussi to look at that subject. Uh, We liked it because we thought that we'd be able to inform defence planning, especially we thought worst case defence planning. And uh, we'll talk about that later today, I'm sure. And um, the need, we thought, for scholarship to certainly here in the UK that terrible phenomenon of bouncing from one thing that we're not ready for to another thing that we're not ready for here in the UK so again possibly leading to misunderstanding as well and we thought that some uh cogent joined up writing using experts might allow us to uh, to uh, to give better sort of
0: visibility air and oxygen to uh, to the subject that's a very fascinating uh, story and you mentioned in your previous answer about consulting experts and this is mentioned in i believe the preface and the introduction uh what type of sources did you consult like what type of experts did you consult for this book yeah so the the book is structured as a primer
1: um so it's we, what, our aim is to try and establish a short, readable, not particularly technical baseline on likely norms and forms of warfare over the coming 15 years. And, and really, to answer your question, to do that from a single point in time. So really, we're more informed by concepts, we thought, rather than particular happenings or particular battlefield developments. We're going to talk about Ukraine, I know. But they become quickly out of date. We're much more interested, if you will, in that 40,000 feet level, looking down at the portfolio of effects rather than uh, any single happening. Um so, to answer your question, where we looked and where we were in this very privileged position to look is we contacted, and as it happened just before COVID, so we took these interviews during COVID with 60 or so thought leaders either from Buckingham, but more usually from RUCI and RUSI's, uh, uh very comprehensive list of associates that it has there. So thought leaders from government, from industry, from armed services, from think tanks and academia, um, also the third sector. So I at the time was chairing the London Committee of Human Rights Watch. Uh, And I'm a director of uh, a charity called Article 36, which is very involved in trying to limit collateral damage from weapons uh, in civilians in conflict areas. So uh, uh, Peter and I rather delightfully came at it from two different angles, both from an academic angle he from a think tank me from a, a experiential x services but also the, the the third sector so we interviewed those 60 uh, thought leaders so some you know generals we had various uh, of, of people your side of the pond um and that became our primary source of uh, of evidence for that and it's it's a bit of a list but it's probably useful Stephen if I can just spend like half a minute talking about the structure of the book because it's made up into uh, um uh, it's made up from 13 12 13 different chapters and each of those chapter headings we identified who we thought the three or four were best most current um uh, that we could uh, speak to experts and use them particular to uh, those chapters Headings. So, you know, in, in, in order, we, we looked at context, and I know we're going to talk about that. So, really, the traditionalists, the pragmatists, and the futurists, and how that piece, that continuum, influences how we should think about forms and norms of warfare. We then looked at how militaries will fight the war. Uh, in the next 15 years so the realities really trying to get to the empirics of this um, and then we looked at how conflict will be waged which is slightly different there it's the the dynamic really between conventional war and very much de jure in 2019 the asymmetric warfare the hybrid that we were all uh, being fed uh, by uh, or, uh, by all of the, uh, the various parties um We looked also then at the acquisition and integration of novel systems, uh, really into legacy force design. And I know that's a bit of a mouthful, but actually that is quite a good proxy with which to deal with emerging technologies and how these technologies were really going to fit uh, uh, into uh, into force design. Uh, my own particular specialty. So one uh, 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 chapter we had really on autonomy and the thresholds of supervision in lethal engagement and how that was changing and how that might influence norms again in these next 15 years going forward. We looked at battle space fighting and we spoke to extraordinary people, uh, experts there. So changes to operations in the rear, in the deep, in the close quarters. We looked at electronic attack and defence. RUSI has a particular Uh, uh, expertise in this, obviously, and the conflict generally in that electromagnetic uh, spectrum. We then sort of changed, slightly pivoted and looked really also at the behavioural points. So we identified experts with which we could uh, speak about leadership and people, about future command and control structures. Uh, another chapter is on uh, operational design and the you know the future of tested campaigning structures how relevant is that in the next 15 years going forward uh, we looked at the cost of changing norms, so whether that's proliferation and escalation, we may talk about. We'll talk about deniability and faint and, uh, uh, and generally instability and misunderstanding. So that also forms a chapter. Uh, the place and function of uh, LOAC. So LOAC is obviously the laws of armed combat, so human rights and humanitarian law. And lastly, the role really of enduring cultural and socio-behavioral factors, if you will, uh, in future conflict so it is as it turned out actually quite a large chunk to be looking at um... Uh, initially, we look. At, we were trying to do quite a short um, couple of pages on each of these paragraphs, uh, on each of these uh, headings. Of course, that wasn't possible. And after a couple of rewrites, another rewrite, obviously for Ukraine, uh, it's taken us three years to put it out. But actually, we're happy with it now. But it needs to be. Each of those chapters can be looked at as an individual chapter. But we like the idea of looking at across the piece and through that, being able to get a better understanding of norm. and and forms, which is uh, what we're trying to do. The audience for the the project, military uh, service members, obviously, uh, defence policymakers, think tanks, all those people that we were already interviewing to get our primary resource, but also really the executive, so politicians, third sector, procurement, uh, and also really an opportunity to try and connect academics and journalists also uh, into the conversation.
0: Yeah, that's always the the interesting contrast where sometimes you got to look at everything at the whole, but then each component can almost be its own study onto, its, onto itself, uh, each of those components that you were talking about. Now, a major part of the early part of the discussion, and this kind of helps uh, set up a lot of the terminology for the rest of the book, is there's this distinction between norms and forms. In warfare that you mentioned already, what exactly is the distinction between the two?
1: Yeah, so that is the the, the nub of the book, Stephen, and you're quite right. It's a, it's obviously an excellent question. What are these norms? What are these forms? It's not natural um, uh, language or, or well, you know, well used, well thumbed language. But let me uh, let me t- t- talk to that point. So norms here. Uh, are extraordinarily important. The norms really concern the patterns of behaviour which make up the rules, you know, and those often ambiguous responses that drive actors' actions and responses. So norms are those things that govern the behaviours And the conduct of actors and generally they're the extension to already existing legal frameworks and other rules based arrangements, if you will, that underpin today's uh, already existing international systems. So they're certainly subject to violation. We're always hearing norms have been violated and also, importantly, local interpretation. But traditionally, actually, they've been quite stable, quite enduring, and they're important precisely because they act as, I suppose, a means of ballast to power of you know, balance of power arrangements. And, you know, previously, it would otherwise mean resort, brutal resort, resort to force, coercion and such like, in order to solve these state level problems. So that, if you like, is the verso of, of norms. So there are there are three types of norms that we look at. There are enduring norms. They they relate to existing, long dated, you know, persistent behaviors. They don't change those uh, those behaviors. They're immutable practices, if you would like, Stephen. That underpin the conduct of war. They're, they're largely transactional, meaning that they do attach to particular activities and processes. And we'll talk about some individual uh, examples in a minute. But And actually, they're generally quite slow to evolve, much slower to evolve than commonly thought. They sit there immutable. That is the enduring norm. Then you've got this cohort underneath of emerging, evolving norms. So they are occasioned by recent advances or technical developments and such like they're quite in flux they relate to still changing characteristics of war uh generally they've got less precedent on which to anchor our analysis they're you know they're unlikely if you will to be like sufficiently coalesced to be defined as either a wholly new or a concrete form of war they're, they're moving about um, so they're undergoing material change, but we still need to understand them. And their basis is informed by earlier understood actions that serve to anchor their foundation and development. It'll probably be more useful when, you know, when we actually talk about some examples there. Uh, and, and a quick aside there, I think, is that you know theorists' views on war they don't necessarily chime with actually what happens on the battlefield. So there's always this disconnect between what we think is a norm, and what is happening on the battlefield. And the norm either will or will not be catching up what is happening on the battlefield. And then lastly, of course, a new norm. And that is something that has undergone recent significant change, but it's now cemented, it's understood as a new norm. Um, That by definition, they're 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 young, they're less stable, and we'll talk about them in a minute. And this uh, is different from a form of war. So a form is altogether, I think it's an an, an easier notion to understand. Fundamentally, a form is just another way of addressing the how, the the, the means employed around which a force will fight an adversary. So it, it concerns, the form concerns how parties fight. They're not about doctrinal underpinning uh you know they don't they they instead they concern it's the operational art they concern it's the tactical science the wherewithal you know what the commander in the field has actually got how he can he or she can allocate their resources um, and it's the amalgam of these forms really when we think about close that Uh, that defines war's character, not its nature, but its war's character. So it's lots of different things that come together that defines war's character at a particular point of time. So they're endlessly evolving, as we said, and they're the sort of visible manifestations, if you like, of warfare, what's actually happening uh, at the front. Um, So I hope that's sort of a a useful way of explaining those two things.
0: Yeah, you mentioned Clausewitz. When I was reading that, I was I uh, I was reminded a little bit of Clausewitz's point about how war is a chameleon that changes and adapts according to context, and also, of course, also his attempt at real war and absolute war, you know, something of an echo, even though Clausewitz may not be directly an influence on this study, but I was hearing echoes.
1: No, I Uh, think that's right. So, I mean, and if we just come to, you know, quickly to some examples, because it's probably useful to frame it with that. So, an enduring, what's an enduring norm? Uh, Lots of millions of them. I think there were 700 mentions of the word norm uh, in the book when I did a a word check or something. But look, the good soldier always trumps good kit. Uh, The the fleeting advantage of new technology. So when Stephen first sees this new technology uh, in his trench, oh, my goodness but actually you will adapt, you'll innovate. These things tend to be nullified over time. That's an enduring norm. Uh, another one, the red line, perhaps, of chemical, biological uh, you know, weapons or whatever. These are enduring, long-dated, persistent norms. We don't expect them to change. The evolving norm, as I said, you know, moving about the place at the moment, war increasingly being fought beyond its traditional battlefield. You know there's a whole new portfolio of tools and means that we'll uh, talk to I'm sure talk about when we talk about hybrid and such like later on um you know particular examples might be uh i know you're going to talk to me about social media and how that perhaps is a um, you know is a, a a disruption in how war is being fought so on the back of that, authorities have got to think about co-opting commercial entities about that social media, for instance. That is something that is evolving at the moment. Dispersion in the face of drones, new surveillance that we'll talk about. All of these are evolving, emerging norms that are important, and they have got a, a you know it's a, a, a key characteristic of how war is sort of being anchored, but also how it's being changed. And then a new uh, um, you know a, a new norm would be the rise of the digital individual, OZINT, each military event having, you know, lots more narratives than was possible in the In prior eras, I'd probably argue the new norm of velocity, speed, data, all of these things. So that's sort of a, a kaleidoscope there of the three types of norms that we try to uh, d- define and look at uh, in the book.
0: Yes, you mentioned battlefields, but now I'm noticing the term now is battle spaces because now it's expanded uh, so much. In fact, I even had a previous uh, interview about battle spaces uh with uh Colonel uh, Jahara of uh, the US Air Force the United States Air Force I believe yeah air force I believe if I remember correctly uh now in terms of studying uh norms how does history theory and presentism like this uh fixation on the present moment how does this relate to the study of norms and you mentioned that Theory sometimes does not always uh, connect with what's happening on the ground.
1: Yeah. So that's uh, uh, so, how does it so? One word to cover that would be difficulty. So you're absolutely right. So we, I like that sort of presentism piece because it is that universal, I suppose, human condition where any commentator is always considering their time as a period of you know, unprecedented turbulence. Um, and simultaneously, I suppose, you know the, the verso of that is attributing like a, a sort of exaggerated tranquility, if you like, to the past. So that is presentism and something that we really had to be aware of. Uh, then, uh, you know, the, the, the verso of that, and I use this word verso a lot. Um, it's the sort of, we were very keen, Peter and I, to look at the other side of the argument. It's uh, so much... Sort of seems to be anchored and sure, but in fact, with a little bit of scraping, there are always counter arguments. And uh, we're keen uh, in the book uh, to give to to try and air all parts of these arguments. And uh, the, the other side of that presentism piece would be you know the belief of what's being observed experience in that battle space your word and actually and you know that that is a, a i think that's a, a much more useful uh, expression in today's um uh, modern conflict that that what's being observed in battle space is entirely novel so you know you've never seen this before and the danger here is that neophilia really ties militaries I think to that sort of interminable debate about the nature and character of war but one that's being informed by budgets and reputation more by you know more than by history and and experience so those two points I think is is you're right to bring them up and various difficulties arise because of that um so in you know, looking at history, and we'll talk about context, I'm sure, in a minute, but it's really that increasing complexity of war's processes, you know, if you like it, its forms, that it it does various things. It it actually narrows down the universe, perhaps, of those who actually understand it today. It's so frenetic, so febrile, quite difficult to anchor yourself in a reasonable narrative when looking at that because of the complexity. Um, And definitely... Similarly, insufficient grounding, you know, by, by data. You'd have thought there is so much data. But what is absolutely obvious coming from uh, Ukraine and other battle spaces is that data, it doesn't equate either to understanding or indeed to intelligence. So, you know, that's another difficulty and another reason why context and history that we come on to is, is so uh, is so important. And you do get this horrible gulf appearing between Commentators' confidence and their understanding. So, you know, some uh, uh, observations I think are useful here, you know, from the uh, historical uh, uh, perspective. Um, And we use these i think in uh in first of all talking to those 60 or so thought leaders but then also when it came to to the, the the writing of the book and that is you know so various observations various assumptions here actors probably over the last decade and a half two decades have been catching up with the western way of war uh the u.s way of war uh, if you like um Uh, Also, that a large number of small adaptions by these um, parties who are not uh, Western uh, Western parties can quite quickly lead to fundamental change. So that's why looking at norms is so important and forms, uh, because changes in that actually cumulatively uh, may add up to actually quite fundamental change quite quickly. Um, And... Uh, you know the the, the versa of that, but I you know, something that I'd also want to to stress is actually parties are very flexible now. So in Ukraine, for instance, we've seen this rapid adaption, perhaps of um, what do you call it, off the shelf um, uh, uh, technologies, or delays to the retirement of old kit. Old kit can still be very useful. So you know all of these must be factored into um, w- w- an understanding uh, of norms. Um, the other sort of complexity, I think, that your question uh, leads to, is that defence parties, whoever they are, we tend generally to solve for problems that you know we prefer rather than those of the you know the cunning enemy, um, and. Uh, I think that speaks a lot to the snapshot nature of this primer, because you know norms move, they develop, they evolve, and so we wanted just to anchor it in a moment of time, 2023, 2024. And you, I think, we all need patience because these things. You know, norms don't have wonderful abstracted definitions, you know, they don't have nice clear edges. So it is going back to the structure of the book and those 12 chapters, understanding all of those chapters is actually the cumulative nature of that that gives you an understanding, um, really both of the pace, but also the degree and strength and permanence of these, uh, of these norm changes. Um, So, yeah, I think that's sort of uh, useful. The last thing that I'd speak to about that, because it uh, informed a lot about the book, is we're really aware um, of this, what we call this revolution in expectation. You've seen it in a PowerPoint presentation or you've seen it on the, the, the television and therefore that you think that it exists. So this disconnect between what may be possible and actually what is probable and likely and we think that that is uh something that that is a runaway train in its own right when looking at norms because people are much less anchored about what is properly possible uh, and that is why it's useful to understand that norms actually evolve quite slowly so understanding them gives you this better understanding of, of of context the context of this
0: this episode is brought to you by la quinta by window Your work can take you all over the place. Like Texas, you've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Yes, that uh, last part of your answer, uh, especially when you said revolution, it made me immediately think of the whole debates about the revolution and military affairs debates of the 1990s and how it's own, and how that kind of shaped that view like how old oh, technology was just going to change everything even we were going to eliminate the fog of war and 30 years later we're we're still seeing the fog of war as you said data does not equal intelligence or information uh, per se or understanding
1: yeah i mean i think that's right and my last word actually was uh, was context which is why this you know this context i think is so important in the study and analysis of uh, norms in warfare because it's you know context is key to you understanding that pace and degree of change uh so look at Ukraine, actually, Ukraine, it's only one war, but it reminds us actually how little battlefield battle space battle practices have really changed. So that context, I think, it's it's really useful because it provides the prism. I think we say in the book the prism to properly weight, give weight to the components of the of the norm debate. Um, you know, from that revolution in expectation, as we said, the possible versus the reasonable versus the probable. Um, and also, it you know, through context, you get to understand that actually there's a whole lot of frictions that abound before new technology, new practices are actually rooted in what you're seeing on the front line. So whether that's procurement or integration or doctrine or training or replacement, all of those things, they are actually uh, they are the the sources of inertia that people, I think, are increasingly forgetting in this febrile. Oh my goodness! There's a new technology. Let's deploy it. It will be a winner. So uh, the other thing that I think is um, uh, is useful around this context is that it gives it gives sort of much more heft to this, you know, east versus west democratic versus authoritarian really is it hubris in the west to be thinking that all parties that we engage with in conflict are going to be behaving with the same laws of armed combat that we observe and uh and such like and i'm sure we'll catch we'll touch on that later so um so various drivers i think sort of contextual drivers that were important to us which was this sort of um uh you know western public perceptions i mean you you mentioned the word uh, sort of revolutions in military affairs so we we we're, we're not so keen on that as an expression but we absolutely do understand that western public perceptions are very volatile and very sort of changing and how that um should be read Uh, when looking and trying to anchor norms and especially within generally as we've uh, obviously 2023 and the start of 2024 this clear great power competition um and 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 so i think we, we we need to sort of understand that when talking about context um so the question really then is you know, the degree of urgency to which all of these influences are pushing the actors to deviate from the you know previous norms and, and is this new? And, and and understanding, I think, that several of the developments, what context shows us there is actually they require often, certainly around autonomy, for instance, they require a really material step change in current capabilities. Um, so you know, is that going to happen? And were it to happen, well, certainly that really does posit a really significant change in how humans wage war. So your point about a, a discontinuity or a revolution. And really, the last point I'd just sort of just talk on that while I remember is really, you know, the ethics and morality and legal framework for these advances, they all really lag behind the adoption of some of these uh, practices, at both the military and also the, the, um, uh, the p- political level. So Context really useful, I think, uh, as, a, as a sort of as a anchor for which to look at norms and forms.
0: Now, does this relate to the distinction between traditionalists, pragmatists and futurists that uh, you and Robert uh, mentioned in the book? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, we can do this quite quickly. It's a sort of a bit
1: of a continuum, this context And again, difficult. I I like this word, you know, it's difficult to abstract. None of this has nice, you know, shiny edges that you can uh, you can cling on to. But traditionalists, you know, they focus on continuity. It's the longer lens of context. You don't don't be uh, overcome. Don't be um, uh, overcome by the fads, the latest sort of technical fads and whatever history fundamentally repeats would say you know someone like uh, sir hugh strawn over here one of our academics and really it's that historical perspective is key to blunting too much movement from norms you know when uh, uh, with you know with the current fashion or whatever so there's the traditionalist the pragmatists slightly different slightly further along the uh, the continuum history here is the study of change that wonderful expression um you know, the, the past is a foreign place you know so history it's it's always you know it, it, uh, it's 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 useful but actually change is the dynamic here uh so that would be uh, you know professor colin gray and such like it would be that uh then on your side of the pond we a little bit further along the continuum uh would be sean mcfate uh who we uh, also interviewed obviously as one of our uh, thought leaders and his uh uh, durable disorder theory. And I think that's really, uh, has been borne out over the last 18 months. That's sort of the new meld, I think he calls it these sort of systemically unsettling factors and the importance of, you know, Russia, China, US retreat, climate change, criminality, uh, uh, what else, uh, natural resources and the, the the rush for those. So, you know, that is further along the continuum. And then the last part there, is the futurist, so it's the the people who really think that the the, the game-changing nature of AI, the game-changing nature of autonomy, robotics, machine learning, uh, and, and such like. So again, that's the continuum, Stephen, and we are placing the norms actually to the left hand side of that we're more traditional we focus on continuity. we are not blinded uh, we don't we hope uh, in the book by by
0: faster
1: change and, and, and fads.
0: Now you have mentioned this uh, previously, but how is like a lot of the information technology like the internet and social media appearing to affect the norms of warfare in the 21st century thus far? Yeah, so we have a whole chapter uh, on this, Stephen,
1: uh, and it's an early chapter, chapter four, uh, and it's really looking at the importance, uh, the new importance of data and information. And, uh, you know, your listeners won't need, uh, you know, a particular um, curation and guiding around this. Um, By 2019, when we started this project, I think uh, more than half the world's population was online. A year later... I think it was 95% or whatever of the population had access to mobile cellular phone network. So these are really extraordinary developments that weren't there a decade previously. Um, 2021, I think I saw recently, you know, more than nearly six and a half uh, a billion smartphone users. And, you know, that's 70% up from five years previously. So, you know, what is the effect on this, of this on norms? So it is. The immediate availability of news and information. Uh, it's also their whole new ecosystem. You know, services, teller, security, communicator. Uh, you're able to hold this in your phone. Um, uh, you know, the verso. There's always a verso, as I said, and it's really what is the the reliability for this data, the veracity, the provenance, the authority. There's absolutely insufficient effort going into secure you know got that, that that part of the equation here but it does nevertheless you're you're quite right it's a Whole newly frictionless ability to see and to judge wherever you are and to participate uh, in war and conflict and a you know a whole new set of behaviors. So people are swiping left and making memories and you know, data absolutely passing us back without necessarily that veracity. And so there are, you know, there are some observations on norms that are uh, you know that fall from this, and uh, we deal with this uh, in detail in the book. And that is, you know, it's actually quite difficult now to be a bystander in war you are either the witting or unwitting uh you know you're a collaborator with a small c uh, in, in conflict and whether that is you as the new digital uh, information the digital individual rather um you are uh, you, you know your source of information you're curating it yourself and you're putting it out to your network um but it is generally this uh Uh, We talk a lot about this withering distinction between the combatant and the non-combatant. And of course, under the laws of armed combat, that's an absolutely key distinction. And if that is diluting and eroding, then, uh, you know, you would think, you'd assume that the current legal structure is not therefore fit for purpose. And we might talk about that uh, later too. But it's really also, it's dehumanizing the act of fighting. You see it on your tiny screen in front of you in your hand. Uh, The dilemma of policing this, we talk about a lot, you know, these content providers are unregulated. And it's also the conundrum of, you know, the civil military, how do they control this stuff? There's so much, you know, the plethora of platforms and and very little loyalty uh, with all of this as well. I would just before we come off this point, you know, there are lots of versos here. So the storage and curation of archive and archiving of this stuff is you know is just not been thought about uh you've already quite rightly mentioned that you know the information plethora doesn't mean that we have better insight or understanding here but it does definitely lead to uh, an erosion of any very difficult to do any official narrative uh, uh, here I think. Um, uh, I'd also point because it's a, a particular sort of bet noir of, of mind. you know that data is very quickly obsolete. Certainly when looking at an autonomous weapon it's very prone to decay. There's lots of it but actually it's quite fragile that data. It's probably duplicatory. It comes at the wrong time it's very ephemeral um and i think generally this whole piece there's a waning effort really to establish any proper historical truth here it's moving narratives i think are how would i explain this they're they're increasingly like experiential it's the winner who determines the narrative like never before i'd probably put a question mark by that but it's a lots happening that probably is the it is certainly the discontinuity and might be the
0: revolution in how
1: war is being fought
0: uh yeah that's very interesting yeah cuz also like even on youtube you can find like all sorts of go uh like personal camera views of like the fighting direct fighting in ukraine and uh i've and i've even seen some of gaza i've been focusing more on ukraine uh lately cuz that's my research area but yeah, yeah, it's almost like you can see like what the soldiers are seeing directly uh uh as it's ha- as it's happening. Not live per se, but yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean I think that's right. You know, that again, the verso of that is of course Ukraine, Gaza, wherever they are only just one war. Um, you know, the next conflict, which is why norms are so important, will always surprise either by the means used, the geography, the actors, um, but but on that Ukraine piece uh you know how has that under uh, you know challenged previous understanding of conventional warfare we'll, we'll talk about hybrid in a minute but you know the context here is important because there are 14, you know 12 14 million people have been displaced and also it really uh it 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 shows the sensitivity of the military models here to the underlying assumptions you know policy prognosticators they're often plain wrong, you know. And the role of the planner is not to be plain wrong, um, but that actually is not so easy. In fact, and Ukraine is definitely throwing that up. Uh, it also demonstrates, I think, Ukraine the sort of diaphanous nature of norms, just that you know the difficulty of sort of di- defining them and nailing them to the floor. So th- that point that I've made before, the difficulty of abstracting clear edges to behaviour there. Um, so I think, but nevertheless, you know, there are some indications, even with your field of your, your, your fog of warfare, if you like so. Uh, and that has been thrown up by Ukraine. So it is the rise of Inexpensive alternatives. Um, You know, you don't need to have exquisite platforms to uh, to give a very, very bloody nose to the the person who's uh, come in and uh, invaded your country and a broadening toolkit, which we'll definitely talk about later on it highlights obviously the, uh, the 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 difference between uh, lethal and non-lethal really the definition of war is much wider now than it's been before you know war versus conflict versus competition and um, and i think Ukraine throws up that wars are increasingly fought and won, probably beyond the traditional battlefield. Your point about battle space earlier on, but this also leads to new avenues for misunderstanding, you know, misinterpretation, especially given the rather febrile lot of co- the, the cohort of allies that you've got here. Um, it, it's moving very quickly, which means that there are reduced buffers for error, safety buffers, if you like. Uh, decisions are being made quicker, less informed, probably. It's probably not that helpful to label everything, all matters of competition. One of the um, uh, the norms that comes out from our book, really as warfare, that's that's not particularly helpful. You know, competition is its own thing that is uh, sub-threshold and different from war. Um, another couple of observations here from the uh, the Ukraine, probably, you know, uh parties are very quick now to learn from others' mistakes, others' crises, very quick to make adjustments, actually, and leapfrogging their own capability, having done their analysis of likely adversaries and exploiting, um, if you like, other people's um, weaknesses. And really, Ukraine absolutely has thrown up this point about resilience, regeneration, clever targeting, supply chains, which we weren't talking about 10 years ago, the importance of infrastructure. So as McVeigh would say, you know, war is undoubtedly getting sneakier, more difficult to measure deterrence and its utility. Um, But it's that, you know, it's a long operation. Ukraine is not going to stop anytime soon. Uh, It's very difficult to close wars. It requires organization the primacy of logistics is a new thing that we talk a lot about in the book stockpiling buffers stores you know appropriately positioned as well don't just have them anywhere um uh other developments in the war. You know, I started this uh, this, uh, this particular paragraph here, talking about twelve million displaced. Well, yeah, the refugees, the brutality and disc, you know discord that is much easier to dis, uh, to sow now, uh, especially with uh, with social media, and how you got to manage much more the expectations of your of your of your popular uh, your populace, if you like your people. Um, so planners can't be too wrong. The the verso of that is, of course, then you become more incremental, which talks to my point about how norms actually evolve quite slowly because it's quite incremental. You don't you're not going to do wholesale change because that planner uh, can't be too wrong. Um, so I think that's sort of quite a useful way to round off that particular section.
0: Now, alongside conventional warfare. Uh norms it also has you also mentioned in the book it's even challenged norms of political legitimacy like the whole rules based order and that's been a great discussion over the past uh, few years just because of ukraine of the ukraine war as well do you have any thoughts on that yes uh
1: yes i mean look Combat operations—they they can't—they're not short-lived. So uh, the empirics there actually. Trumps the politicians' notion that this is they're going to be able to be go in and be very surgical, and that is uh, you know they're going to be able to clap their hands and uh, and be finished there. So it's rarely d- decisive, I think. You know, so that speaks, I think, to political to, uh, to political uh, legitimacy as well. It's difficult to end. Hence my uh, point in the last uh, paragraph there about you know resilience and resupply, and actually the complexity here of doing all of that uh at the retooling and things. Um, but I think with that legitimacy again is it's actually ever more difficult to signal intention. Um, and that is a change. Uh, and it's a change to how the politicians, thinking back to Klausowitz, are going to, uh, to wage their to that wage their war. Um, the you know, it's increasingly easy to sow ambiguity. I think to muddy thresholds, um, actors, actors' leverage. I like this this sort. We talk about this in the book a lot. Actors' leverages it's is sort of increasingly out of proportion to its size and capacity. How on earth? Is Ukraine able to blunt what was meant to be this extraordinary war machine of Russia? Now that might not have been the case at the turn of the century, um, but in a full-scale invasion, in uh, as, as we witnessed, uh, um, you know, that's clearly clearly been the case. There, um, a couple of other sort of legitimacy points here. I think uh, use of third parties, so whether they are mercenaries, whether it is. Um, Iran, North Korea, China, um, coming and becoming this uh, uh, arms bazaar for for Russia. Um, that is something that you do. Other things with legitimacy. um so the new priorities that we've already talked about. I think that you know, defence of logistics, the contradictions between remote warfare. You know, the fact that you're sort of uh, you're you're uh, engaging um, from several miles behind the line, and but actually, we still have this enduring ghastliness of combat. So that, that speaks to uh character of war, but actually, the enduring, unchanging nature uh, of warfare um so i think that is you know that so that talks to uh, about the, the legitimacy point
0: now we have touched on this a little bit uh, a few times in the uh, discussion thus far but do you think that the role of technology in shaping and changing norms in warfare has been uh greatly exaggerated i know on um, mm-hmm. this side of the pond in america almost all the discussions about warfare or future warfare was almost always focused on technology and how technology was going to do this and how this will destroy everything within x miles and nothing can defend against it uh but we're kind of seeing as you said uh in ukraine especially we're seeing like older systems being reused or re-upgraded and so forth yes we are seeing drones being used but Essentially, in a way, a lot of this is also with trench warfare. It's also reminiscent of World War One with its massive artillery bar, uh, barrages and trenches.
1: Yeah, it would not be out of place. And I'd go even further back than that. You know, Napoleon's lieutenants would not feel massively out of place uh, in the front lines while, around Bakhmut and uh, and, and other um, shattered towns today. So, I mean, I think that's a really good point. I um, uh, So my dissertation title was Challenges to the Deployment of Autonomous Weapons. So I am something of a Cassandra here. These things work until they don't. Uh, And, you know, there are lots of um, uh, other parts to this. We've talked about the institutional inertia against change. um, But also, I think increasingly there is this loss of forgotten institutional memory but like uh, when technology doesn't work you actually got to go back to steam gunnery and you've still got to engage and i've still got to have an axe in my hand and such like um so uh i think that's that, that that is right so let's look at certain of the sort of the unchanging themes if you like to technology you know i would still argue there is this routine overstatement of of capabilities. And, you know, if I'm a politician, I wonderfully extrapolate these to change narratives and use narratives. Uh, Everyone loves the idea, again, going back to the revolution and expectation that technology will come to the rescue here. And there are too many parties that benefit from this, whether you're the manufacturer, whether you're the politician uh, and, and other parties there. But we still have the threat of Runaway budgets, if you like. We still have immediate obsolescence and other better mouse traps being developed um, uh, at, you know, to trump you, you know, you're coming with your new technology. Well, don't rely too heavily on it because I may have a better one. And the point earlier about first time you see that technology, drones, for instance, uh, um, that is uh, you know is tricky, but actually adaptation, innovation, uh use of of other dual-use technologies, will this theory of nullification uh, second, third time that you encounter those technologies, it may not actually be such a disruptive um, uh, experience to you. And also, you know, technology is difficult. Um, political interference, changing priorities, procurement—all of these things that you know—you'll know more than I do about it. Um and technology generally, I think, is is much more incremental than uh than audience give credence to. You know, it, it often masks an underlying problem and tries to deal with that. It rarely offers a silver bullet. It does for a you know a short period, but then you know the inertia from doctrine and training and planners, conservatism, whatever, that tends to come in and blunt that. And I like particularly, we talk about it this notion of technical debt, all of these technologies certainly if we look at autonomous weapons why really haven't we seen huge development in that as a as a, um, a as a um, as a system if you like a new system is because you know there are architectural design intricacies here you know who owns it lots of parties lots of commercial pressures or whatever and this is the sort of the dirty empirics of actually trying to deploy these new systems into uh, legacy Forces. It's not that easy, and empirically, it doesn't happen quickly. Um, you know, it needs to happen in lockstep with lots of other departments and wings. And uh, you know, so I'm a old tank commander. It's not just a question of putting a new tank in. You've got as a whole uh, sort of cohort of uh, of considerations that needs to be um, uh, and thought about. And you, you know, just the, the the notion of people just talking about technology. I think that. It just ignores all the intangibles of reliability and easy deployment and buy-in by, you know, your sergeant and your corporal who's actually going to be using these things. How do they maintain them? How do you configure these extraordinarily complicated new technologies that are coming to the battle space now? Um, my own uh, uh, fields is around autonomy and data and, you know, the need to backfill for data and partial con- contradictory, difficult data um, you know it really needs experts to do this and uh, those experts aren't on the front line it's got to work every time and first time so that is from the planner's perspective what you need to think about when talking about technology here and i think you know at the end of the day what was the first enduring norm that i talked about it is the you always want to have the better soldier rather than the best kit so it is it's a still about and it's always going to be about national effort and stable security and leveraging others weaknesses whatever it's about your domestic audience and and such like and also just the last point i think on these technologies they're increasingly exquisite you know difficult um difficult to procure difficult to design hugely long uh, procurement timelines here and uh, you know the testing and verification and and the skill required to do these, I think, are generally underestimated. And as you said, it you know old West uh, weapons they remain very lethal. Uh, you know, hence the long dated nature of some of these um, uh, these weapon uh, weapon systems. So uh, um, yeah, so technology certainly there, but don't forget that you know the last three minutes have been all about the versos and difficulties of actually integrating these technologies
0: yeah there's even examples uh shown of soldiers in ukraine being armed with Mosin de guns and all sorts of weapons from world war ii and they still they still work they're still useful so hey whatever works uh you don't always need the the latest uh the kit but if you are well trained then you can make use of what you have
1: yeah i think i think that's that's all right you know at the end of the day it's all about empirics isn't it it's uh actually you know experiences it, you 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 the planners and your top brass uh, can write endless presentations but at the end of the day what we're seeing here is a much broadening toolkit available to uh, uh your commanders at uh, the raises the rise and rise as we said before of these uh, inexpensive uh, alternatives um and just the speed and the the, the velocity and the reduced margin. So I think all of those are are, are important points here.
0: Now, you do talk about uh, hybrid warfare or hybrid means in warfare. And of course, since the seizure of Crimea in 2014, hybrid warfare has kind of been in a lot of the discourse, especially about russian military means uh what what do you and roberts uh, mean by uh, by this
1: Yeah, so uh, you know in the interest of time there's a, again you know uh, two chapters in the book on this so you know the concepts here such really were being talked about in that sort of 2018-2019 time frame. And I think, actually, paradoxically, I would disagree with you. I'd come back and say I think that hybrid piece is much less being talked about now. Of course, it's still there. It's not just conventional. But we really are seeing the importance, again, of that strong conventional glove, that fist, uh, if you like. So, you know, concepts, I think, such as new and hybrid and unwar and what else did we have in? 2019 New War, they were definitely suggesting at that time uh, uh, an important, you know, possibly profound distinction between wars of the past and those of the the present and and the future. Um, Our analysis here is that, you know, hybrid war, really an overused term, suggesting what did it suggest? It sort of it sort of suggested that there was like a near-term replacement, if you like, that conventional warfare, force on force, that was never going to happen anymore. We were going to have alternative means. It was going to be, what was it going to be, cyber and misinformation and uh, campaigns from unattributable sources. That I like that notion of, you know, plausible deniability. It was going to be sanctions and, and pandemics and yada, yada, whatever. So I think it was much overused There. Um, And the the, the difficulty back in 2019, I think, with this concept of hybrid was that a state may be at war without actually knowing that it was at war. You know, so the start and finish point in conflicts, they were certainly becoming less and less becoming increasingly equivocal. I think it's probably a useful word of doing it. So what were those hybrid Pieces. It was really, I suppose, the key observation of our book is this breadth of means. It's the rise of the, inexperi- uh, the, the inexpensive alternative that uh, we've talked about. This, you know, the non-lethal as opposed to just the uh, the lethal. Um, it was uh, that unhelpful labelling, as I said before, is everything as as, as warfare. So I think there. There are various costs, I think, to this blurring, if you like, this blurring, the hybrid blurring, and states' actions, if your adversary is doing stuff that's just below that sort of blatant illegality, if you like, that sort of outright war threshold, that... Yeah, that is difficult. You know, it's difficult to counter. It's It will certainly distort widely held values for, uh, you know, for my country or whatever, uh, who are experiencing this. It can really paralyze decision making because that plausible deniability, is it actually happening? It's ambiguous and uh, so difficult to understand. And as a result, it's obviously much easier for a politician, we found in the book, to delay a policy response in order to you know establish facts and get your context and your narrative in line and uh certainly with uh, with Russia there the more so given several states their their confidence their misplaced confidence if you like in their own intelligence apparatus and their you know data does not equal understanding or whatever um so I love that expression. I think one of the people, one of the commanders, NATO commanders that, uh, that we interviewed for the book said, uh, of oh, hybrid, no one understands it. But everyone, including NATO and the European Union, agrees it's a really big problem. So I think that sort of talks to the the grey nature uh, of of all of that. Um, And we don't really have time to talk about the sort of unrestricted warfare strategies that we go into uh, in the book. Um, But I I think it's a sort of a useful chapter when talking generally about sort of uh, about hybrid to understand that there are lots of ways of waging
0: war. How do uh, alliances and coalitions play in uh, the formation and endurance of uh, norms? Yeah, so I think that's a really sort of
1: interesting uh, observation. So, no. how well, would answer? So, certainly, bring teamwork, support, collaboration. So that backfilling that we were talking about that's sometimes missing with data and information—if you've got uh, a you know a good alliance that you can, uh, your, your your cohort that you're happy and trusting of, uh, then it ensures that backfilling and is really, as a result, extraordinarily important. But you know, the verso always a verso. They are. Political, therefore, sort of slightly ephemeral arrangements, and that would be the norm there. That nothing has has changed um, uh, with, with regards to how permanent these uh, coalitions and alliances should be expected to be. Um, and I think even they are weaker perhaps as a norm than in previous eras because of societal transformations whether that's through uh, uh social media and this extraordinary um uh, ability to have information at your fingertips, your own information, your own bubble of information there. The precariousness of governments, certainly, and the new norms of warfare, all of those are destabilising to what was previously an enduring norm, I would think. and um, uh, But it also, you know, alliances, I think that there's some you know, useful, positive parts there. They They focus parties on their obligations, and that can also mean Ethics, morality, costing these things, keeping people committed, parties committed. Um it's it it talks i think a lot about not only about winning but the nature of that winning how you win and if you're just a single party as opposed to a cohort an alliance of parties i think more we think in the book that the nature of that winning is uh is is more discussed and more important and there is a degree i think of of self regulation there and whether that is not particularly helpful you know the west versus the rest it's still Uh, It talks again about norms not fluctuating as quickly as uh, audiences might think. I think alliances also bring to the fore the sort of the economic imperative, the sort of pragmatic imperative. We've talked about, uh, you know, the Kremlin, you uh, supply chains or whatever. There's a whole lot of stuff that can be done within an alliance uh, that couldn't uh, happen uh, with for, for, uh, single parties. Um, but it is definitely you know, is bewildering. If you look at Ukraine, it's an ab- bewildering an array, we thought in the book, of these flexible transactional arrangements and groupings that, you know, that come and go. And whether it is multinationals or their multilaterals around specific issues uh, you know there's uh, whether they're in in defense industry groupings cooperations very important important to understand um but moving quite
0: quickly and should be seen within the overall frame of norms now you mentioned you wrote a dissertation on autonomous weapons now how are unmanned aerial vehicles uavs as they're commonly called What impact are they having on norms on contemporary warfare? And in your view, what might be their probable uh, future impact will be?
1: Yeah, so uh, ubiquitous surveillance, extraordinary in those opening months of the Ukraine-Russian warfare, uh, war rather. Um, And I think really that the array of capabilities around those UAVs are still quite nascent, very broad. But um, so developing quickly, it is still it's that I go back to the character of war rather than nature of war. It's just another battlefield consumable, uh, if you like. And it's a uh, that's not unexpected. I mean, it's a there's a continuum of development with UAVs. We saw them in Syria in 2018, Libya, um, we saw them in Saudi Arabia and Yemen, Nagorno Karabakh in uh, uh, 2020. But, you know, you do have to remember the Versos here. So they still have limited range. They are still require skilled deployment. A uh, few of them are one-time use. They are very... Um, fragile, vulnerable to uh, air defence system. There are supply constraints. There are doctrinal gaps. So the doctrine hasn't yet sort of caught up with the very quick moving nature of these things, but undoubtedly a discontinuity in how war is waged. So it's a form of war, which in time will inform a norm of war. Sorry to be sort of clumsy there, but uh, so it's a form of war that will change how norms um, deal with particular aspects of the battlefield and that will happen over time um and you know clearly they are perhaps replicating artillery it's lower cost they've got quicker engagement cycles. Um, with those UAVs and uh, as we move closer towards semi-autonomous use and deployment of these, lots of new strategies, lots of different ways of being able to wage war. So anything that is uh, dirty or dis, you know, distant or involves um, uh, humans, actually you can start using uh, um, uh, UAVs to do these things They a a leaker strategy with a a swarm of uh, of these units. You only need one of these things to get through to cause real damage uh, to your adversary. So you know that's that swarming is obviously uh, something that is uh, happening quickly. But they are you know you need a lot of humans to run these things. Uh, There's also Implications to it's a sort of disproportionately costly defence against these things. Um, we've seen how useful they are, particular in naval disruption. They're less noisy. They're particularly good in confined harbour spaces or other sort of environments that are less ready, uh, if you like. So certainly an extraordinary discontinuity. Quite early on in their development. Uh, so, you know, we are all watching this space, but uh, it's a character of war, certainly uh, no more yet.
0: Now, the book does talk about uh, three major recent developments in battle space operations. The first one is rear and deep operations. What, what, is, what is that development?
1: Yeah. So uh, we have a couple of chapters, you know, what are those sort of recent developments in, uh, in battle space operations and, you know, there's a whole portfolio of these. So, you know, air and it comes from the micro such as, you know, air defense. Um, it's no longer a separately detailed asset. Um, you know, it's actually got to be fully integrated local plans, local forces. So that is very granular. Um, but there are, Okay, so let's let's deal with that uh, rear and uh, deep operations bit first before we sort of go, go sort of further. Uh, you know, to forty thousand feet. So we've talked about that sensor saturation, ubiquitous overwatch. Everything can now be seen. There's no sanctuary. The olden days of me being able to reverse my tank and go and uh, reorg and rest uh, at some back area. That's that they've certainly gone. But the verso there, as we've talked about, sensor density does not necessarily doesn't equate to insight or understanding. It's very dynamic that battle space that you talked about. Difficult. To to abstract, um, you know th- those. It, it also it's a considerable expansion in the size of the possible operational area. No longer are you just tied to three kilometers plus or minus of that uh, uh, trench system that forms the, uh, the the front line. Everything now is a, a a possible operational area, and this, of course, has profound. Command complications. You know, it needs you need to disperse your assets suddenly, and the more so given the increased lethality of those weapon systems that we talked about. Um, but it doesn't do anything really about, you know, it doesn't change the timelines. Um uh commanders will still go to war thinking that you know they're never going to go to war thinking, yeah, we've got the right the ideal asset set. So um adaption, invention, melding all of these uh, assets is still as important as it ever was. Probably the new priority is uh, protecting logistics. Um, And actually, uh, probably more important, actually, I'm just going to move from your deep area to the combat, to the combat in urban areas. Because that we think, uh, Peter Robertson, I really think that there's been extraordinary change there. You know, and it it complements the rise in the urban sprawl. Um, which we're seeing generally, you know, that's a that's a global phenomenon. But that, together with the decline in the number of personnel under uniform, actually, that's quite a that's quite a mix there, because urban conflict, it does various things, it, you know, it degrades communication, the technology is new, it's, 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 Technologies are much less useful in a built-up area. You think your GPS. Think your uh, you, you, you don't have ubiquitous communication and line of sight um, uh, in a in a built-up area. Uh, hierarchies are much more difficult. It blunts the attack in size. It's you know one person is able to create a stronghold out of a building, which will take a whole battalion, a whole day to deal with, and then that person moves back to an equally well-prepared. It's much slower. That 15 to 1 required ratio, you need 15 attackers to 1, which is very different from where we started this paragraph about talking about rear and deep operations. So replen is difficult, coordination is difficult, sensors less effective. Uh, the, the role of the underground, you know, underground um, that we're seeing in the in the Gaza-Israel uh, uh, conflict. So very, very different there, I think. Um, so last point I'd say about just generally about this battle space coming up to forty thousand feet. You know, you've definitely got the emergence because of this ubiquity of uh, being able to see everything. Of new important pinch points, and whether that is nuclear facilities or undersea cables or rare earths or whatever, there are definitely new priorities being created because of these developments in battle space. So whether that is the supply chains that we talked about, better readiness, better collaboration, we talked about the um, uh, your alliances and whatever, um, and it's also the, the the verso of this. There are Fewer institutions, weaker institutions, to 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 mediate and facilitate and decelerate. Um, you know these sort of fast moving battle space operations so really that's something you know the, the issue that you hear a lot about about escalation and unforeseen confrontation and crossing of threshold that is all as a result i think because of development uh, in these um uh, in these battle space battle space uh, uh, operations
0: now how does uh, the behavioral patterns of leadership how does that help shape uh, warfare norms? That I believe that's like one chapter of the book, yeah, or at least a couple chapters. It, it is. It is, uh,
1: and especially interesting on the sort of the autonomous side because you are actually taking away the decision, the human element. Uh, from a lethal engagement and you are basically delegating that to a machine so can you delegate the decision to kill to an algorithm so that is a obviously a key behavioral uh point that we talk a lot about uh in the book but just look just on that point of the sort of the leadership uh bit uh, from our perspective, you know, leadership—it's the least expensive resource uh, when talking about technology and the like. So it's the least expensive resource, but actually, it's the most expensive determinant of outcomes. And I always thought that was a very neat uh, aphorism that was given to us by one of our uh, experts there. And I think that, as um, uh, you know, that's proven—it's um, proven in. In the ukraine russia conflict where the idea was to the initial idea was for ukraine to cut off the hydra's head so targeting leaders and actually, that has, in fact, proved quite ineffective because, of course, the next generation of leaders is very happy to assume leadership. So it's that the importance of training and doctrine and muscle memory, actually quite difficult to, you know, to cut off that hydra's head. And so the, the importance here I'd leave you with on this paragraph is of, of training, of motivation, of inspiration and example all things that are intangible and extremely difficult to code for. So my point about autonomous weapons is how do you code for ambiguity? How do you uh, put into a weapon system goals and aims and values and such like? And uh, that, I think, is the enduring difficulty around... Uh, anything that requires machine learning, and uh, just briefly on that point, uh, you know, a machine learning relies very clearly on a defined data set. Uh, t- upon which you use to train your uh, your agent. Now, a couple of points on this. First of all, there are no uh, you know d- there are no military uh, data training sets because they are immediately obsolete as new technology, new means come in. Uh, they are anyway uh, confidential and, uh, uh, and and conflicted. And I'm you know as one party is not going to allow another party to train their agent using uh, the, their data points. Uh, data is it's it's difficult it's fractious it's fragile it's requires backfilling all of those points before and to rely upon training sets to To uh, to do targeting and other you know other pieces around the laws of armed combat is just risible. It's uh, it may work to a degree on a university workbench, but it's never going to work practically uh, in the uh, uh, in battle space. So the idea of a uh, a a data set understanding that a tank is basically something that moves obliquely, is grey, has a particular RF signature, and has got a a turret and a you know barrel coming out of it. Well, how do I defeat that? I simply paint my uh, turret pink or whatever, and that will utterly fox uh, the uh, the data, the, the the training set, and the agent will you know will, it will be no use at all. So I think there's a a long way to go. There's sort of two points there on leadership and technology, uh, but again, misunderstood misunderstood generally by audiences.
0: Now, what are some of the main takeaways? Uh, from this study, do you think, for those trying to understand contemporary and near-future uh, warfare? Oh, so, well,
1: that, <laughs> that is a big question, Stephen. Um, do, your best, this, do your best, do your best. It's the 270 pages of the book. So uh, what are they, the, the takeaways? Um Generally, I think we have been too closely informed by recent Western experiences. Uh, You know, we were all bought into the seeming eclipse of the Cold War and everything was going to be hybrid and uh, we don't need conventional anymore. Um, I think the conclusions are that, you know, hybrid is undoubtedly there. Subpressure threshold means really much more empowered by technology than uh, we would have thought five years ago. Uh, and, and that's really borne out by Ukraine, because I think the outcomes there are not particularly expected. You know, there hasn't been a extraordinary cyber event. Um, regime change didn't happen; it failed. Uh, Instead, we've had sort of very heavy bombardment and, you know, the use of the materiel was, as you said earlier, would be very familiar to commanders in 1915 and 1940. Um, I think the takeaway here has been understanding as a norm the importance of the pivot away from like constabulary peacekeeping roles, if you like, well, that uh, for the last two decades, uh, we've um, commissioned our military forces into full throttle warfare. And that pivot is really, really important and needs to be better understood. You know, it's fraught. I like saying it's it's fraught with exogeneity. There's there's so much stuff that is not in your control. The planner can't be late with that pivot the, you know, the political, the budgetary, their enemy, they're all trying to um, enact against that pivot. Uh, So you need a bit of luck there, I think. And I think the uh, the, our finding is that the current industrial backbone, if you like, certainly in Europe, is just like simply not adequate. You know, we don't have the supply lines, the raw material, the skill, the timelines. And that's compounded because actually forecasting is really hard, especially given you know when we opened this conversation about presentism and the like, uh, you know interpreting everything through using this Western recent concept that just plainly doesn't work. It's been consistently wrong. So I think the norms, it really they highlight the need to re-examine. Especially around Western assumptions here, around others' ideas of acceptable costs and timelines. Well, that may be fine for the West, but your adversaries, really, I think that all needs to be that that, that that's something that needs to be re-examined. Uh, the more so as as means become cheaper, as thresholds and politicians bar to conflict, if you like, they get they get lower. Um, so that is something. Um, language is, you know, it's plainly very ill-suited. It's far too reductive. It's inappropriately simplistic, I think, to deal with these things, to understand norms. You know, the more we know, the less we understand. We've already talked about that. And actually, little's change. Ukraine, Syria, it's, you know, they would be immediately recognisable to the erstwhile leaders that you were uh, talk, talking about. Um We talked about that revolution in expectation, really important. It's anchored our norms, I think. Um, But also, you know, on your point about technology, soldiers still need to fight when all these wonderful technologies and connected weapons, when they fail. So it's that steam gunnery we talked about. The capabilities, if they work, they're fleeting. They're always dependent on context. And actually, it really points, norms points to that, you know, I said at the top of this conversation that we had this rather strange chapter on the novel, uh, novel technologies in uh, legacy force design. Well, actually, that force structure is, you know, is, is really, really important because combat operations, I mean, who knows how long they're going to be? But I think they're they're not short lived. They're really decisive, as we said. So that planning piece is incredibly uh, is important. Um, I think so. Uh, there are some sort of lessons that uh, uh, that that we we've sort of come to. Force multiplication is another one. You need lots of whatever you've got. You need lots of them. Don't have one exquisite platform. Have lots of them. Uh, we are less experience than we should be around electronic warfare we think readiness is key you know that resilience that civil civic preparations that information game winning the information game um, everything we think when we looked at in the book it's been hollowed out the resources have been hollowed out we've got we we're, we're coming from a very low initial base, which is very important given, actually, the key ability is to absorb those initial losses. I'm not sure we could do that. Uh, So that is something, uh, it's a long norm, it's changing, we need to think about it, and and there are actions to be had. So the current force structures, for instance, they're probably, we find from our, our book, they're probably... Ill suited to high intensity combat, especially around this duration piece. If they're going to be long, you know, wars are not short, either physically or behaviorally, the more so given social media, by the way. And so we need to. You know, we need to think about that. And I think there's just generally there's a a lack of evidence on all of this stuff, um, especially around technological means. Do they win over the long term? I'm not sure that they do. The key determinant is will. It's the will of the people. Think close of it. It is. So that is the important piece. So actually, not so many
0: changes, probably. Um, uh, Context is key. This has been a very fascinating discussion. Uh, Do you have any final thoughts, uh, Especially after that last answer, or uh, anything we didn't cover in the book. Uh...
1: No, I don't think so. I think you've, I think you've had most of it. Um, a pity that I didn't have Peter here because he's much more articulate on some of, uh, 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 on some of the sort of more strategic and um, you know sort of behavioural enduring pieces here. But I uh, know, I think, uh, I think you've got it there. Just take away that context is uh, context is key.
0: Well, we always like to end. Our- our uh, interviews by asking our guests uh what are you working on now
1: uh so i've got another book stephen coming out with uh howgate publishing so uh, kirsten howgate is our is peter and uh and are um uh, my excellent uh, publisher and i've got another one coming out uh next july so the end of the summer uh, and so this one is war. Wars change landscape. The next one is war without oversight. Why we need humans on the battlefield. And so it's really a look, a detailed look, slightly longer look that this uh, this book about uh, all of that. Can you give the decision to kill? to an algorithm and all of the frictions and difficulties around that and why the human is very useful and enduringly useful, Stephen, as a norm uh, on the battlefield. So um, I'm sure we'll uh, speak later in the year, but that one will be out in the late summer with with Howgate.
0: Yeah, I was about to say, maybe we could have you back on the the podcast to talk about uh, that book.
1: Good. I look forward to it.
0: Uh, Patty Walker, thank you for joining us on the New Books Network. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. Until next time.